0: Well, statistics tell us that three people die every second. That would mean that 180 people die every minute and nearly 11,000 every hour. And if the Bible is right about what happens at death, and obviously I believe that it is, then these statistics mean that more than 250,000 people, a quarter of a million people, uh, go to either heaven or hell every single day. David wrote in Psalm 39, verses 4 and 5, Lord, make me to know my end and what is the extent of my days. Let me know how transient I am. Behold, you've made my days as handbreadths, and my lifetime as nothing in your sight. Surely every man at his best is a mere breath. In fact, James would repeat that. In the New Testament, when when he said, our life is what? It's just a mist. It's just a vapor that appears for a little while and then it vanishes away. Nearly nine out of every ten people in the United States say they believe in heaven, according to a recent ABC News poll. And you know those are always right. But what exactly do people uh, think of when they think of an afterlife? And what do they believe is required to get there? That's really important stuff. Every culture uh, since the beginning of time has wrestled with this question of an afterlife and most have come to a similar conclusion than that is that the bad people end up in hell and the good people go to heaven. Uh, Let me tell you this, for example, if you were a Viking who died in battle, fierce goddess warriors known as the Valkyries would carry you to Viking heaven, Valhalla, where you would join an eternal feast. (laughs) That sounds good. The Romans thought they became immortal and were spirited off to paradise on a fiery four-horse chariot. The imam, who's the founder of the American Society for Muslim Advancement, says he believes heaven is indeed a physical place, but getting there depends on your behavior in this life. He said this, the real life is the next life, and based upon how we live this life, it determines where we shall be in the next. We're told we will be in comfortable homes reclining on silk couches, which I don't know. I, I read Randy Alcorn's book. I've read the Bible. I never saw that. But he says we're going to be on silk couches, not cotton, but silk couches, so that we're given the delights of sex, the delights of wine, the delights of food, with all of the positive things without their negative aspects. Now, there's something about what he said that I really like. I like that whole idea about, All of the positive things I like right now without their negative aspects. Isn't that awesome? My wife made some chocolate chip cookies this weekend, which I told her. We've been married for 22 years, and she has helped to build what you see today. (laughs) And I told her that those probably were the best chocolate chip cookies I'd ever had. But imagine if when you got to heaven, you could have the chocolate chip cookie, all the delights of the chocolate chip cookie, yet with none of the negative aspects. I love that. It reminds me about 10 years ago when I heard of this thing they developed, uh, exercise in a bottle. That's just awesome. All of the positive benefits with none of the negative aspects. The Dalai Lama is considered by Buddhists to be the reincarnated Buddha. The Dalai Lama says that the purpose of life is to be happy and that you you can accomplish that by warm-heartedness. He told Barbara Walters in an interview in 2005, heaven is the best place to further develop the spiritual practice. For Buddhists, the final goal is not just to reach there, but to become Buddha. It's not the end. As a Buddhist, he believes in reincarnation and told Barbara Walters that people can have second lives as animals. If someone does very, very bad, maybe he kills or he steals, the Dalai Lama said, he could be born in an animal body. You know, all of these people who, who I just quoted are right about one thing, and that is that we are eternal beings, and we will spend eternity somewhere. You know, when Jesus was comforting his disciples in uh, John chapter 14, he made it very clear to them that he was going to prepare a place for them. And not only did he tell them that he was going to prepare a place for them, but he told them actually how they could get there, how they could go there. John chapter 14 says, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me and my Father's house. There are many dwelling places. Now some of your translations might say many mansions. That Greek word there does not mean mansions. You might be disappointed someday when you realize that this sprawling estate that you thought you were going to have is not exactly what you're thinking. He's creating many dwelling places. And Jesus said, if it weren't so, I would have told you because I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you might be also. And you know the, the, the way where I am going. Thomas said to him, doubting Thomas, Lord, we don't know where you're going, and how can we know the way? And then Jesus said to him some of the most encouraging words if you're here today and you don't know Jesus as your Savior. The gospel is very simple. The pathway to heaven is very sure. When Jesus said, I am the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life, no one comes to the Father, no one gets to heaven except through me. So I want to spend the remainder of our time uh, together this morning uh, discovering what the Bible has to say about this place that we call heaven. Now, I want to answer a few common questions before we, we we go any further and before we dive in. Here's questions people ask about heaven. Will we really sit around playing harps and singing all day? Uh, we, we hear worship leaders talk about that. Like, have you ever heard a worship leader talk about, when we get to heaven, boy, we're just going to sing. And you're sitting there going, I don't really like to sing. <laughs> I don't really know if I want to go to that place. I think you'll find with a real careful study of heaven that we're going to be doing much more than just singing and playing harps all day long. Will we recognize people that we know on earth? I think the scripture is very clear that we will. Will we be married or can we get married? Now, depending on if you're in a marriage and you're in a happy marriage, this question could go one way or the other for you. Some of you are thinking, well, at least in eternity I'm done. Uh, Others of you are thinking, man, this has gone pretty well down here. I'd love for this to last for eternity. Don't turn to your spouse now and tell them where you are in that particular mix. But there won't be marriage in heaven as we know it here on earth. We will be married to who? Jesus Christ, that one who redeemed us, who bought us as if it were from the slave market of sin. Is there going to be fishing in heaven? I think there is. There's going to be a river. We're going to read about that here in just a few moments. Are there going to be pets? Dogs maybe? Cats? Definitely not. There aren't. (laughs) All right? I'm just being straight with you, all right? Randy Alcorn says something different, so he'll straighten you out when you get into that book. One man asked, are there going to be Yankees fans in heaven? I don't know. I don't care. I don't think Red Sox fans are going to be there either. So I, you know, I don't know about that. Is there going to be Mexican food? Absolutely. Sushi? Never. It's not going to happen. How about vegetables? No. You say, well, how would you ever know that? Because there will be no more sorrow, no more sickness. (laughs) I know there's no vegetables, no green stuff. That will all be over with. Remember what the imam says. You get all the good stuff with none of the negative effects. Will there be golf? Uh, Only a a par three, nine holes. 18 holes takes way too long, even if you've got all of eternity. So I, I don't think so. Probably not. Uh, NFL football, yes. College football, definitely. NBA, it's never going to happen. There you have it. Some of the most common questions and clearly biblical responses that I have now given you regarding heaven. Now, obviously, you know, with several of those, I'm just joking. Except for the vegetables, I'm totally serious there. But God does say in his word, he gives us a very clear picture of what heaven will be like. For the person who is a Christ follower, let's do a little bit of a review. If you've placed your trust in Christ alone as your Savior, which means you're not trusting in the fact that you think you're a good person, and that somehow because you're such a good person that one day if you die or when that trumpet blows and Jesus comes back for us in the rapture, you're going to go to be with him. But you are simply trusting in Christ alone as your Savior. The Bible says that when we die, our souls, our spirits, are taken to heaven where God dwells. Paul said to the Corinthians in Second Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6 to 8, that for believers to be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. And so our physical bodies remain in those graves here on earth. That's why you hear so often when you go to the funeral of a believer and you see that body laying in the casket, so often a pastor will say, that's not him. And I'm really pleased to tell you that for the Christ follower, that is absolutely true. That is not him. That is simply the shell, that worn-out shell. That the body or the, the spirit, the soul, has been taken to heaven. But according to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 13-17, to 17, at the rapture, our physical bodies will be joined together with our spirits, with our souls, and will be resurrected. And we'll receive a glorified body that will be reunited with our soul, with our spirit. And that reunited, glorified body will be the possession of believers for all of eternity in the new heavens and the new earth. Revelation chapters 21 and 22. We're going to look there in just a moment. In fact, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Revelation chapter 21. When we reach the 21st chapter of Revelation, now this is so important in the study in which we've had the last four weeks, the recorded history of man is coming to an end. All of the ages have come and gone. Christ has gathered his church in the rapture. The tribulation, the great tribulation in the book of Revelation have passed. The battle of Armageddon right at the end of the tribulation has been fought and it's been won by the Lord Jesus Christ. Satan has been chained for a thousand years, and if you're paying attention a few weeks ago on our timeline, then at the end of that one thousand years, he's released for a short time. But God defeats Satan, and Satan receives his just, just punishment, which is an eternity in the lake of fire. The great white throne judgment takes place. That's where those who have not trusted in Christ alone as their Savior are judged. That is when every knee finally bows and confesses that indeed he is Lord. When that's taken place and mankind has been judged, that's what we come to here in Revelation 21. Now let me say at the outset that many people have a misconception of what heaven is truly like. After the events of the end times, the current heavens and the earth will be done away with and they're going to be replaced by a new heaven and a new earth. The eternal dwelling place of all believers where you will spend eternity is in that new heaven, in the new earth. The new earth is the heaven on which we'll spend eternity. It's the new earth where the new Jerusalem, we're going to talk about that here in just a moment, the city of God, the heavenly city, will be located. It's on this new earth that's joined together with the new heaven that the pearly gates and the streets of gold are going to be. Now, if you're like me, you might ask the question, then, Where did my loved one go now who died knowing Jesus as their Savior? Well, they went to heaven. It's a temporary place. We're not totally sure exactly how that all works. I would speculate, and there are many uh, good theologians that would agree with this premise, that right now we would go to heaven and that could very well be the new Jerusalem, the holy city. And one day we're going to come back down here, we're going to reign with Christ for a thousand years... And that new Jerusalem will come down and be joined together with the new heaven and the new earth. And so the concept of heaven, our eternal home, that concept that it's in the clouds is really unbiblical. The concept that we're going to be just spirits that are going to be floating around aimlessly, that's obviously unbiblical. The heaven that believers are going to experience for all of eternity is going to be a new and perfect planet on which we will dwell. The new earth is obviously going to be free from evil. It's going to be free from sin, from sickness, from suffering, from death. And it will likely be similar to our current earth or perhaps even a recreation of our current earth. But it's going to be much, much better than we've ever imagined. If you could go back to the Garden of Eden before sin, before sin came and corrupted this planet, it'll be that on steroids. That's what heaven will be like. We're going to bask in the glory of God. We're going to realized that our chief end really was to glorify God, and not just to glorify God, but to what? To enjoy him forever. The psalmist wrote, in thy presence is fullness of joy at thy right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. And and such a thought like that, uh, to me, and maybe to you, uh, is unfathomable to our finite minds. But scripture repeatedly makes it very, very clear that heaven is a realm of unsurpassed joy, unfading glory, undiminished bliss, unlimited delights, and unending pleasures. You're not just going to sit there and sing hymns all day long and float around with wings and play a harp. Nothing about it could possibly be boring or humdrum. It's going to be a perfect existence. One commentator wrote, Murphy's Law will finally be nullified. In heaven, whatever might go wrong can't. That's going to be an awesome day, isn't it? And so Revelation 21 gives what amounts to a full exposition of Isaiah's promise that he talked about in the Old Testament. Here the Apostle John describes his vision of the final consummation of all things. This chapter contains the Bible's uh, most exhaustive description of the new heaven and the new earth along with its capital city, that holy city, the new Jerusalem. And what we see here in Revelation is a microcosm at the end of of, of what we find at the end of Isaiah. And it's spelled out for us more clearly here. So let me give you several things this morning. And this hopefully just whets your appetites a little bit. again, I want to challenge you to pick up this book and dive in really, really deep to this subject of heaven. But hopefully this will whet your appetite a little bit. Let me give you just a few things. Number one, heaven is huge. Heaven's huge. It's important that you understand that. In chapter 21, verses 15 to 16, John says, The one who spoke with me had a gold measuring rod. Bible scholars say that that measuring rod was probably about 10 feet long to measure the city and its gates and its wall. And the city is laid out as a square, and its length is as great as the width. And he measured the city with the rod 1,500 miles. Its length and width are equal in height. So the city is perfectly symmetrical. It's a massive cube, 1,500 miles square and 1,500 miles high. Now, quite frankly, that's just unbelievable and unfathomable. We can't even comprehend those uh, dimensions. On the current Earth, something 1,500 miles high would extend well out uh, beyond the Earth's atmosphere, which is only about 100 miles deep, so about 15 times that. But remember that heaven and earth will be merged, the atmosphere will have ceased to exist, and so that won't be an issue. According to these measurements, then, the New Jerusalem, and by the way, this is just the capital city. This is where God dwells. This is his dwelling place. The New Jerusalem covers a surface area of about 2.25 million square miles. Now, just to give you a comparison, if you've been to London, the greater city of London is 621 square miles. The actual city of London itself is an area of only about one square mile. Uh, I I remember that because several years ago I went to London and somebody that was in my group had the bright idea that we would go, we were in the airport, that we would go into the city, but we didn't do what normal people did and kind of leave our baggage at the airport. They thought it would be good to take our baggage with us. And so we went into London carrying our baggage. If you ever have seen a tourist having a massive suitcase just walking around the streets of London. I can attest how big the city is. The actual city of London is only one square mile with a population of about 5,000. And on that basis, the new Jerusalem would be able to house over 100 billion people. And that doesn't even take into account the height of the actual city. So when Jesus said to his disciples, I'm going to prepare a place for you, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I'm going to come again. I'm going to prepare dwelling places for you, and I'm going to come get you so that where I am, there you can be. Trust me, there's enough room for every Christ follower in the new Jerusalem. And we'll discover in the glory of eternity uh, that those few that Jesus talked about in Matthew chapter 7, the few who would be that would find that narrow gate are actually great multitudes of people. Heaven's going to have plenty of room for them, nonetheless. How far is 1,500 miles? If you think about it this way, it's the same distance from Maine to Florida. Imagine such an area squared off, then cubed with multiple layers, millions of intersections of golden streets. Doesn't that just blow your mind? Doesn't that just take you to to another place when you think about that city? It's huge. Number two, we're going to get to see God. We're going to get to see God. In fact, John wrote in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not been made known. But what we know is this, that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Chapter 21, and verse 3 says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne, saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. We're going to see God. If you ever wanted to see God, we're going to see him one day. I loved my grandfather uh, dearly, my mom's father. He died my senior year in college, and my grandfather was was a good man. Uh, He used to fly me down to Mississippi where he and my grandmother lived every spring break to go fishing with him for a week, just to fish. And I did this well into high school. He would fly me down. We would go fishing. I love my granddad. You know why? Here's several reasons. They're very simple reasons. He let me eat cake for breakfast. I love that. My mom would never let me do that. My grandmother never let me do that. But granddad let me do it. He let me eat cake for breakfast. He let me eat ice cream for lunch. If that's all I wanted, then that's all I ate. I ate ice cream for lunch. And a milkshake for dinner. And right before bed... I could have a Coke if I wanted it, even if I had already brushed my teeth. I love my granddad. He was, he was an awesome guy because he was my grandfather. I remember the first time that I went to their home after he died. and You know, it was no longer the same place. It was different because my grandfather wasn't there physically anymore. Listen to me and and, and make sure you get this carefully and you get it right. The great attraction in heaven won't be its pearly gates. It's not going to be those golden streets. It's not going to be how massive the holy city is. The greatest attraction in heaven is going to be Jesus. That's what it's going to be. Heaven would be no heaven if Christ were not there. Just like my grandparents' home was not the same when he wasn't there. As Christians, our highest satisfaction will come when we see God and his son, Jesus Christ, and when we stand before them in perfect uprightness, heaven's going to provide us that privilege, an undiminished, unwearied sight of his infinite glory and beauty. And that's going to bring us eternal delight when we can see Jesus. In fact, we can begin to understand maybe a little better when Peter uh, wrote in Matthew chapter 17, it was said of him that after seeing uh, uh, from only a faint glimpse of that glory, he wanted to make a camp on the Mount of Transfiguration and stay there permanently. I love that passage of scripture. When Peter says, I saw just a little glimpse of it, I think I'm just going to pitch my camp right here because that was awesome. And the text there says that Peter just got a little glimpse of God. Heaven's going to be pretty awesome. It's going to be pretty spectacular, not just because it's huge, but because Jesus is going to be there, but because because we're going to see God. You know, for many of us this morning, I recognize that this third area is a great characteristic, a biblical perspective of heaven, and that is heaven will have no more pain, no more sickness, no more death, and no more sorrow. Look at verse 4 in chapter 21. John went on to say, and he, God, will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. Paul wrote in Second Corinthians 5.4, While we live in this earthly tent, we groan with a feeling of oppression. It's not that we want to get rid of our earthly body, but that we want to have the heavenly one put on over us so that, what is immortal, so that what is mortal will be transformed by life. In heaven, we're going to get a new body. Aren't you glad about that? Some of us this morning are more glad than others of you. Others of you, I'm looking at you going, you got a pretty nice one right now, but some of us are going, I can't wait. Those of you that just got some new parts put in you, And you're going, man, I can't wait till one day I can trade in the whole thing. Not just fix up this old jalopy, but I actually get a brand new body. If we're honest, we have to admit that living in this earthly body really is not so great. Our earthly bodies, they get tired, they feel pain, they get sick. And with age, they move slower, they sag. Our eyes dim, our ears dull, things fall out that aren't supposed to. Hair falls out, teeth fall out. For some of us guys, the belly falls out. you know things happen. Most people really aren't happy with their bodies. In fact, billions of dollars are spent in this country every year to cover up, make up and to lift up and change the flaws in our body. One of the greatest things about heaven though is when we get to heaven we 're going to have all new bodies. There's no longer going to be any of those restrictions we now have. We won't need to do any of those things we have to do right now. My good buddy and friend, my dentist Tony, back there, who's trying to work on these teeth that are just messed up, because I uh, I, I almost knocked two of them out sumo wrestling when I was a youth pastor. Now, now, don't let your minds go too far with that. But I sumo wrestled, you know, in these big suits, and, and a high school kid knocked these two teeth, and they've been giving me problems ever since, and. And Tony's trying to fix them. And Tony, guess what, man? In heaven, we won't need you. It's going to be awesome. I mean, I love you right now. And I want to spend eternity with you, but not as a dentist. I don't want to hear that zzz in my ears. It's not going to be necessary. Because I'm going to get a new body. There's, never, there's not going to be any sickness, no more sorrow, no more sadness, no more death. For those of you that are here that have had to watch a loved one, whose body literally just faded away right in front of you, we will never, ever again see that. God will do away with all of that. There will never be sickness, no sadness, no sorrow. And any tear that is in your eye at that particular moment, John said he saw God and God wiped that tear away because all of those things will be done away with. Isn't that going to be awesome? There won't be any new hips in heaven there won't be any need for, to get your knees replaced or anything of that sort. It's all going to be new. There's going to be no more pain, no sickness, no death, no sorrow. Now, you knew I couldn't get away with a biblical perspective of heaven without mentioning this next one, and that is we're going to eat some good food. We're going to eat some good food. Matthew, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 8, verse 11, I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and we'll take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. In other words, we're going to sit around the tables with people like Abraham and Isaac and other Bible characters. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine, I think I'm going to have dinner tonight with, with King David. He kind of invited me over to his dwelling place tonight. And I'm going to have dinner with him. Can you just imagine going over to Abraham's house? And saying to Abraham, could you pass me some of that lobster? And oh, while you're at it, a little of that filet mignon would be good. And and I'd also like some of that coconut cream pie. Can you imagine that? Revelation chapter 22, if you look there in that next chapter, verses 1 and 2 said this. Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming down from the throne of God, and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street, on either side of the river, was the tree of life, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. You didn't know that the Fruit of the Month Club was biblical, did you? That's going to take place in heaven. Fruit of the Month Club. Those trees are going to be there, and every month they're going to yield its fruit. And it won't be a FedEx guy coming to your door. You'll just simply walk down the street and go, wow, I love that fruit. And it'll be like anything, unlike anything you have ever tasted in your life. Now here's what's important to remember, that no food is going to be needed in heaven. We get tired, and so therefore we get tired and we get weak and we eat. Or some of us don't get tired and we still eat, but whatever. We won't need food in heaven, but incredible gourmet delights will nonetheless be enjoyed. Now, I don't have time to go off on a tangent here, but that just tells me that if I'm going to eat food in heaven just because it's an awesome, fun thing to do, and remember, without any of those earthly consequences, it just tells me that God is preparing a place for us that he wants us to enjoy incredibly. That's why I believe the Apostle Paul said to the church at Corinth that whether therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. So therefore, this idea that we're simply going to be up in heaven flying around with wings like this, strumming on harps, is quite contrary to what we see here that John saw when he got a glimpse of heaven. This underscores the truth that God has designed heaven that we might enjoy him and those surroundings forever. Much of heaven and much of what we read here in the book of Revelation is designed for sheer pleasure, both the pleasure of God and for the pleasure of his people. Chapter 21 and verse 8 says this, But for the cowardly and unbeliever, And abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. This gives us another biblical perspective of heaven, and that is that we're going to see or or we will not be exposed to sin. There's going to be no sin, there's going to be no curse. Nothing unworthy is going to be there. I quote to you very often, I won't turn there this morning for sake of time. But in the book of Romans chapter 7, and you remember that the Apostle Paul describes for us so vividly the battle that goes on in his life with sin. I know many of you that, especially some of you men that I spend time with, and you talk about that struggle that you have. And and I know for myself, the, the sin struggle that's there. To want to do this and to find myself doing that, to know I should do this and find myself doing that, one day... We're going to have no exposure to sin. That battle is finally going to be over, and I can't wait for that day. I can't wait for that day when that struggle with sin is done, and I'm going to be holy, you're going to be holy as he is holy. Now, I really for, uh for some of you what you would consider to be one of the best things about heaven, and that is we're going to see those that have preceded us in death. Those that have died in Christ. Those that have died knowing that their eternity was secure because they were trusting in Christ alone as their personal Savior. All those that you know, that you have known, who have died in Christ, we are going to see again. Paul reminded us that we don't sorrow as those that have no hope. Paul reminded the the church at Thessalonica that heaven is our hope. If you have your Bible, turn real quickly just to uh, that passage that we've referred to a couple times now in 1 Thessalonians 4, where Paul, when he was writing to the church at Thessaloniki, said this, brothers, we don't want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep, those who have died, or to grieve like the rest of people that don't have any hope. Verse 14, we believe that Jesus died and that he rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left at the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Those earthly shells are going to rise out of that grave. And we're going to meet him in the air. They're going to meet their body, their, their spirit, their soul in the air. And the Apostle Paul says in verse 17, and after that we are still alive, and our left will be caught up together with them in clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord forever. And then notice in verse 18 what he tells us to do with those words. What does he tell us to do? He says, therefore, comfort one another with those words. Now, I've actually. Heard Christians say that they don't want to go to heaven until they've enjoyed all that the world can deliver. Maybe you've known people like that. When they've exa- exhausted all the earthly pursuits and, and when they age and they become sick and that begins to hamper their enjoyment, then they believe they'll be ready for heaven. It'd be something like saying, Please, God, don't let me die before I go to Hawaii. I just, I just want to go to Hawaii. Let me tell you, having been to Hawaii, footnote on a budget, could have, could have been different that way. But having been to Hawaii, that heaven, what we've described here this morning, and what we see in Revelation chapter 21 and verse 22, is nothing compared to heaven. Hawaii is nothing compared to heaven. We must not look at heaven from an earthly perspective. C.S. Lewis wrote in his classic book, Mere Christianity, he wrote this. If you read history, you'll find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. The apostles themselves who set on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. He went on to say, it is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so effective in this world. So you are to think about heaven. You are to think about your eternal home. I heard a pastor not too long ago in a sermon that I was listening to talk about how Heaven should not be the goal of the Christian. Heaven shouldn't be something we talk about. We shouldn't come to Jesus as our Savior just because of heaven, because he's promised us a home in heaven. And I thought to myself, have you read your Bible? Heaven is what gives us the passion, the enthusiasm to live this life down here in this place with all of the things that we have to deal with, to put up with. Can you imagine my friends who are this morning living there in that third world country of Kenya, out there in the bush, and they are literally starving to death. If there was no heaven, if there were no hope, yet I've been impressed time after time and after time when I've seen my brothers and sisters there. At how joyful they are because they recognize something you and I so often fail to recognize. And that is the truth of that old song that we used to sing. This world is not my home. I'm just passing through. My treasures are someplace else. It's not here. If you have that perspective of heaven, you will be earthly good. You will be effective here in this place. John Eldridge wrote in his book, The Journey of Desire, nearly every Christian I've spoken with has some idea that eternity is an unending church service. We've settled on an image of the never-ending sing-along in the sky, one great hymn after another, forever and ever, amen. And our heart sinks. Forever and ever, that's it? That's the good news? And then we sigh and we feel guilty that we're not more spiritual. We lose heart and we turn once more to the present, to what to what we can find here in this life. Let me tell you, God created us to love him, to glorify him, and to enjoy him forever. And I will tell you, that will happen in heaven in a way unlike you could ever experience here on this planet. Do I know everything about what it will be like and every little detail about heaven? No, but I know enough to know that it's going to be incredible. But if you live your life without cultivating a love for heavenly things, you're never going to be fit for heaven. In fact, 1 John 2 says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. The world passes away and the lust thereof, but he that does the will of God abides forever. Jonathan Edwards, I know some of you enjoy uh, reading Jonathan Edwards, that great Puritan preacher. He oftentimes spoke of heaven In his early 20s, Edwards wrote down a set of life resolutions, uh, 70 of them. I would encourage you sometime just to do a Google search, Jonathan Edwards' 70 resolutions, and read through those resolutions that he wrote down in his early 20s. One of them, in fact, number 22 of the 70, he wrote this. I love this. The Puritan preacher, he wrote this. I resolve to endeavor to obtain for myself as much happiness in the other world as I possibly can. Don't you love that? I'm going to obtain for myself as much happiness as I can in the world to come. In heaven. And yet for so many of us, if we were to write down our life's resolution and be honest, we have resolved just the opposite, have we not? I will do whatever I can to obtain as much happiness as I can right now because one day I got to go to heaven. And yet, God said everything on this planet is going to fade away. It's going to burn up. It's all going to go away. And so you don't store up for yourself treasure here, you store it up in heaven. And that's why Jonathan Edwards says, I endeavor to obtain for myself as much happiness in the other world as I possibly can. Because that, as the Apostle Paul said, is where thieves can't break through and steal and moths don't corrupt. That's eternal. Paul wrote to the church at Colossae in chapter 3, verse 2, Set your mind on things above, not on things, not things that are on the earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, is revealed, then you also re- will be revealed with him in glory. Why? Because you are made for a person and for a place. Jesus is that person and heaven is that place. That's what he created you for. He created for us to have a relationship with him as our creator and then to enjoy one day a place he has created for us in heaven to enjoy him. And that's why Jesus said in John fourteen six that he's the only way. He's the only way. Our eternal reservation is confirmed when we place our trust in Christ alone as the payment for our sin debt. As one old spiritual uh, song uh, said that that people used to sing, sing, everybody talking about heaven ain't going there. Only those of us that have placed our trust in Christ alone as our Savior. Let me end with this. I like this story. I read it several years ago. And I, I, I think about it often. I think about it as something my grandmother might have said. There was a woman who was diagnosed with a terminal illness and she was given three months uh, to live. And so as she was getting her things in order, she contacted her pastor and, and had him come to her house to discuss certain aspects of her final uh, wishes. And after discussing what she wanted for her funeral service, she said excitedly, there's one more thing that's very important. And he said, okay, what, what, what's that? She said, I want to be buried with a fork in my right hand. The pastor had never heard of that, but he stood looking at the woman, not knowing quite what to say, and she said, that surprises you, doesn't it? The woman said, well, to be honest, it kind of is puzzling to me too, and I knew you'd be puzzled at my request, but she went on to explain, in all my years of attending church socials and potluck dinners, I always remember that when the main course dishes were being cleared, someone would lean over and say, keep your fork. She told her pastor, she said, it was my favorite time of the dinner because I knew something better was coming. It might be velvety chocolate cake. It's probably banana pudding. It could be something like that. But I knew something better was coming and I needed to save my fork. So I just want people, she said, to see me there in that casket with a fork in my hand, and I want them to wonder, what's with the fork? And she said, when they ask you, what's with the fork, you tell them, keep your fork, because the best is yet to come. And I want to tell you that this morning. I want to encourage you this morning. As we've talked about the rapture, we've talked about that great tribulation period, We've talked about those two judgments last week. <laughs> but now as we end with heaven, those of you that have lost loved ones temporarily in Christ, let me tell you, the best is yet to come. The best is yet to come. The best we were going to have down here with them anyway is about 100 years, and that would be, that would be really long. <laughs> the best is yet to come all of eternity. Those of you that have broken relationships right now and, and you think, boy, how am I going to make it through this world I, without this relationship? And God, do you care? Do you understand? Let me remind you today, the best is yet to come. Those of you who are in this room right now and your bodies are broken down, and you're wondering how much longer really you're going to make it, or maybe you went to the doctor this week and you were diagnosed with having some illness, let me just tell you, whatever God has planned for your physical life, the best is yet to come. I think that's the greatest encouragement I can give you. The best is yet to come. And so I want to challenge you with this as we close this series and we end it with heaven to stay faithful and live life in view of eternity. Resolve, as Jonathan Edwards says, to store up for myself as much happiness in the world to come. Live your life with purpose and live your life with passion for Jesus because the best is yet to come.